So for our first, call it, you know, 10 plus missions, the reentry capsule is about a meter in diameter and can bring back about 40 to 50 kilograms of materials. There is a very wide set of basically like, you know, pharmaceutical candidates that we can pursue that 40 to 50 kilograms once a quarter far, you know, outweighs basically, you know, the total patient, you know, population consumption, again, of the primary ingredient. Our pharmaceutical partners will take that primary ingredient, that crystal, you know, structure that we have formed, and then go send that to a secondary CDMO manufacturing facility, where then that gets put into, you know, a gel capsule, a tablet, a saline syringe, an IV drip, you know, however that particular, you know, basically drug is uh, administered to the patient. But that part does does not have to happen in space. Welcome to the Curiosity Podcast, where we go deep on a wide variety of technical topics with the smartest leaders in the world. I'm Imad Akhun, the co-founder and CEO of Mercury. And I'm Raj Suri. I'm the co-founder of Lima, Presto and Lyft. And today we're talking to Delian, who is the co-founder of Varda, which is a space technology company uh, doing lower Earth orbits and focusing on space manufacturing. And he's also a partner at Founders Fund and has done a lot of investing there as well. And he's a kind of um, well-known on X slash Twitter as well. And I was really interested to talk to Delian. He's really well-versed in his space and very curious to learn about space manufacturing, which is a whole field that I had no idea about, could make any sense at all. But actually, the way Delian explains it, it makes a ton of sense. Imad, what were you curious to learn about from uh, Delian today? Yeah, I think the interesting thing of his background in VC, kind of investing in aerospace and then becoming a founder here gives him this commercial mindset that's like kind of missing sometimes from these hard tech endeavors. And he's really thought about everything from first principles, like he's, how do you do anything in space and how do you do kind of Vada in space? I am feeling like much more hopeful about all of space industry after speaking to Delian. I feel like, you know, if there's enough smart people taking a crack at these things from different angles, we're going to have like a real space civilization in the next kind of 10, 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you definitely come away from hearing Delian and you feel a lot more hopeful because he's really thought about it from every aspect. He knows the technology inside out. He knows the customers, knows the use cases. You know, he knows the economic model and the history of what's gone into this. So having people like that work on these types of problems is exactly what we need. And the ecosystem just gets better and better too. So very excited to talk to him today. And one recommendation for some folks is Dalian speaks fast. So you may want to turn down the audio speed so you can make sure you get every bit of wisdom he's spouting. So with that, let's welcome Dalian. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat today. Yeah, you have a really interesting kind of story, like software founder, kind of turned VC, turned to startup founder in the space tech. Can you walk us through how you ended up here and what your kind of thinking was throughout it? I've had this like long-term, you know, fascination with aerospace, you know, since a very young age. And originally it was on this life path where I thought that, you know, the sort of default path was going to be study robotics and, you know, computer science in high school, go off to, you know, undergrad at a technical university, do grad school at Caltech, and then, you know, join GPL and then join NASA to, you know, do basically deep space, deep space robotic missions, given that, you know, felt like the most, you know, sort of applicable interest to, you know, my skill set. And call it like, you know, freshman year of college started to take a bit of a, you know, sort of hard left turn and realize that the world of, you know, let's say more academic training and working at a, you know, sort of government institution like NASA was less of an interest of mine and, you know, is more interested in the world of, you know, sort of the speed of, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurship there. And when I looked, though, at, you know, some of the heroes that I had, you know, in the world of Silicon Valley, plus, you know, call it aerospace, there was really only one common pattern amongst all of them, right? So if you look at, you know, Elon Musk, Chamath Papatia, Steve Jurvetson, et cetera, all of them basically, you know, sort of made it big in normal tech and then went to go work on aerospace. And so, you know, as I thought about my path forward, I thought, okay, I can do this, you know, JPL thing. I can go be like an individual engineer. And I had a lot of friends from MIT that went and did that, go be an individual engineer, you know, at SpaceX. Or I can try and follow the, you know, Chamath, Elon, Steve, you know, sort of path and instead like go work in sort of like quote unquote normal tech, make it big there and then basically go work in space tech. And so decided that that you know, sort of third path was you know going to be my path. And so decided to work, like you said, on, you know, things that were in sort of pure software, you know, become an investor. And part of why I actually ended up deciding to stick around in the world of investing originally was supposed to be just like a one year stopover was because I, you know, ended up uh, within the first, you know, sort of six, nine months of working at Coastal Ventures, actually ended up sourcing an aerospace investment that we ultimately ended up making, uh, Akash Systems. And through that, sort of had this like sudden aha moment in the, uh, you know, call it 
This would have been late 2017, early 2018 timeframe after making that first investment that rather than just having to, you know, wait until I was like, you know, 40 or 45 and had made a big and normal tech and then, you know, work on aerospace, there's a way for me to do it much sooner in a very strategic and interesting way that just wasn't just being an, you know, IC, you know, software engineer over at SpaceX. It was the fact that because people like Elon Musk had, you know, sort of lowered the barriers of entry to the space, you know, economy, let's say, now as an individual investor, you could actually make investments even at, you know, the ages of 23, 24 that I was, you know, at Coastal Ventures and start to, you know, sort of work in the, you know, space in a way that combines both technical expertise as well as, you know, call it more business background. And so kind of got, you know, hooked on this idea of, hey, let me, you know, start working in aerospace today at 2324. Ventures the only way to do that today. Great. Let me, you know, sort of keep doing doubling down on that. And by the way, I kind of like being an investor a bit more than I like being a founder. And so let's just, you know, sort of lean into this and hopefully I can get back to the like building space companies one day a bit later. Turns out sort of paying that tuition for, you know, three, four or five years, you know, investing into space companies was a great way to sort of eventually prepare myself for the, you know, founding of Varda. So yeah, it had always been this like, you know, let's say like lifelong interest, uh, you know, in how to navigate my way towards building an aerospace company. But, you know, with a variety of sort of factors and partially due to the advent of reusable rockets, rather than having to wait until I was, you know, 60 to do something like that, I could actually do it, you know, sort of much sooner in my career. That's an interesting path. Would you recommend that path to kind of the younger Delian? Or would you say, <laughs> would you say that's like a pretty random set of things that came together and would hard be, it would be hard to replicate? I think today there are easier ways to accomplish this path in that, because the space economy has grown so much, like let's say, I mean, if, if your number one criteria is the same as mine, which is build your own interesting space company and you're 19 and just dropped out of MIT, relative to when I dropped out in 2013, there are a much wider set of very interesting early stage companies operating in the space economy. In 2013, it was effectively just like SpaceX. Rocket Lab and Planet Labs. That was basically it. There's only three options. And at that point, all those companies were relatively scaled up. Your ability to like, you know, join the founding team basically had already passed. And there weren't, you know, if you look at it in the space economy, I can't actually think of an interesting space company that was founded between 2012 and maybe 15. There were no interesting space companies that have been founded. Everything that was founded in that time frame was either too late in that it was a space, it was a rocket company that wasn't able to then compete with SpaceX and Rocket Lab, or it was too early in that it was, you know, a fanciful idea that did not make sense before the advent of reusable rockets. And so it was too early to its time. If you are 19 and dropping out of MIT today, I think there's a much wider set of opportunities that you can join at the very early stages, not just be a cog in the machine, and also learn a lot about the like you know space economy, right? If I look now in the summer, you know, call it fall of 2023, what are the like interesting between seed and series B aerospace companies? I can now name like 10 of them versus, you know, I think of the 2000, you know, sort of 12 through 15 time frame, I think you could have really named basically none. And so I think the alternative path today would just be go join an early stage aerospace company, use that experience to then go build your own. So I think there's a much more direct path today. In some ways, I had to kind of sit on my hands for a bit to, you know, wait for, uh, you know, the progress in the ecosystem, you know, to catch up to the point where somebody with my experience could actually dive into it in a more interesting lens than just being an individual software engineer. Yeah, you said you had four to five years experience on the VC side investing in aerospace and space companies. What would you say were the biggest kind of advantages of that? And do you think there's major kind of disadvantages from this kind of VC mindset you kind of came into this with? Yeah, I mean, the advantages were, you know, quite immense in that relative to even hyper sophisticated, you know, SpaceX executives that had been at the company for like six plus years, my understanding of the end use cases, how to actually, you know, sort of build up a business model in space, what the plethora of various, you know, sort of vendors, regulators, et cetera, that you need to interact with was actually much deeper, even with a much you know, smaller set of years of experience. Obviously now, did I have as many years of experience like actually building spacecraft, going through the systems engineering of that, thinking through the trade-offs? No, but most of that stuff is not necessarily immediately, immediately the first, you know, sort of relevant factor when, you know, considering what business to build. So I think a ton of advantages there. I do think obviously there would be great disadvantages if I was the CEO of Varda with the only the experience that I had in that my ability to then assess, you know, sort of top tier, you know, mechanical systems, thermal and engineers was effectively nil. But that was explicitly, you know, something that I knew that I would not be great at and was looking to round out with a co-founder. So 
The disadvantages where it gets pretty clear, but I don't think also impossible to solve for. And the advantages were definitely pretty, you know, sort of immense. Not only understanding, you know, the, let's say like, you know, how to analyze and understand a particular business model in space and what the end users are, but then also obviously like that skill being then helpful in relation to, you know, describing the opportunity to investors for, you know, financing. We'd just love to dive into Varda and, and ask some questions about like, clearly the space ecosystem is exploding. Why did you pick this particular problem? Maybe you can describe the problem you're looking to solve and why you picked it. The particular problem space that you know, Varda exists within is something that I've been fascinated with since, you know, call it like 2009, year 10. I think if you, you know, sort of study all of human history, when you look at any time that there's a permanent human settlement, you know, outside of where the current sort of society is, the only time that those things ever become, you know, sort of long-term sustainable end up being with economic incentives, right? Whether you have like the California gold rush, the original United States colonies, the Portuguese and the Chinese, you know, naval empires in the 1400s, all of them, you know, follow this familiar pattern where when there is not a continuous economic incentive, things fall apart. When there is, things become very sustainable. And that's why, you know, in the Apollo era, we effectively, you know, visited the moon a handful of times and never went back because fundamentally there was no sort of economic use case for that. And, you know, governments are only willing to, you know, throw empty dollars towards, you know, sort of deep research and capabilities for so long. Ultimately, if, you know, they're not making a return on it, they themselves are, you know, not particularly efficient, but they are still ultimately capital allocated. And so when I thought about sort of the future of space, you know, it was clear that there were people thinking about the early economic use cases around satellite communications, so obviously things like Starlink, the Earth observations, you know, taking photos of the um, planet, uh, like Planet Labs, ISI, etc., and while those economic, initial economic use cases were interesting and definitely the right ones to pursue before reusable rockets, none of them really, you know, had any justification for human presence uh, at any level of scale, right? You know, the moment that you're scaling up internet communication satellites, all you're going to want to do is just basically build more and more, you know, parallel, individual, small, fully automated satellites. Same thing basically with, you know, taking photos of the Earth. But industrialization of space, whether it was like asteroid mining, you know, lunar ice mining, or in space manufacturing, all of those were business models where, you know, fundamentally... You know, autonomy was absolutely going to be relevant and almost certainly kick off the use case, but these were highly complex industrial processes that, if you observe those same processes on Earth, absolutely required pretty significant human presence, even in the most automated, you know, facilities. And so my idea was, when the time comes, focusing on the industrialization of space is ultimately what's going to create economic incentive for there to be humans having extended presence in space, and that's how you eventually get to the point of having, you know, a city the size of, you know, San Francisco in low Earth orbit, and eventually a permanent, you know, sort of lunar, you know, base. So that was the original fascination call it in 2009 through 11. In 2011, I actually, you know, considered back in the day, potentially working with some of the very, you know, sort of first generation companies working on some of these problems. I'm not sure if you guys, you know, remember any of them. They were, you know, around Silicon Valley at the time, but things like planetary resources, Moon Express, Made in Space, uh, these were all, you know, sort of Silicon Valley, VC, you know, sort of funded companies back in the day. But you know, ultimately felt like the time period was not yet, you know, sort of correct in that all these are predicated on easier access to space and that fundamental, you know, sort of input had not been solved yet. And so as time progressed, and especially in like call it the 2017 timeframe, where it was clear to me, if you basically studied the curve of SpaceX's mass to orbit every single year is almost a perfect exponential curve. And so it felt clear to me that, you know, sort of the access to space problem was going to be solved, you know, in a very short time frame. And so I did sort of a deeper dive into each of these use cases. And to me, it felt quite obvious that if you looked at everything from, you know, and again, probably top three being these, but many more between caught lunar ice mining, asteroid mining, and in-space manufacturing, it felt very clear that the easiest one to commercialize in a very near-term time frame was in-space manufacturing. In some ways, just given the logistics and the ease of it. Like, I, I love asteroid mining and lunar ice mining. It'd be very cool to get to work on those one day. But those are still, you know, definitely pie in the sky relative to just staying very close to the earth, manufacturing goods and bringing them back down. It's just like logistically a much, you know, sort of simpler problem instead of something makes it, you know, a much simpler business. So that was when I sort of, let's say, narrowed in from the broader industrial use case to, you know, in-space manufacturing particularly. And then I really picked up the idea again after I joined Founders Fund in Q4 2019, where for the first time, a SpaceX rocket basically launched and landed four times in a row. And it went from this like 2017 projection of an exponential curve to like 2019, you know, very realistically, you were seeing this exponential curve, you know, come to life. Paid a couple friends at SpaceX, you know, that were involved in Falcon 9 and asked them, you know, how much wear and tear are you guys seeing on these first rockets that are, you know, landing? The resounding feedback was, you know, these things are landing three or four times now. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to get it to 20 plus times. And that's where the bit sort of switched or flipped in my head where it went from in-space manufacturing being something that I was like intrigued with to now this is no longer even like a theoretical future unit, unit economics like today with these current reusable Falcon 9s. This is something that you can absolutely commercialize. And so I spent actually about five or six months, you know, from the beginning of Q4-19 till basically, you know, COVID hit meeting with everybody that had ever thought about in-space manufacturing. You know, everything from the venture, you know, back group 
groups that had, you know, still stuck around since 2013, to, you know, academics that had published papers, to pharmaceutical researchers that were working within larger commercial corporations, but ultimately came away from that six-month excursion and analysis, realizing that, you know, nobody quite had the right approach. And the sort of one-liner summary of it was that everybody that was working on this problem to date was only interested in working on this as long as basically they were working within the confines of the International Space Station and had backing and funding from NASA. And my first principles thesis, again, I don't know, you know, a ton about spacecraft, but my first principle thesis was there's just no way that you're going to be like commercializing this type of business model on top of a like super bureaucratic government run, extremely low risk tolerance space station. You should ideally be doing this, you know, sort of on an independent initially satellite and eventually, you know, sort of scaled up to what one would call, you know, sort of a station. But when I talked to any of these groups that were working on this problem, all of them had no interest in ever, you know, sort of moving off of the ISS, given that they saw that there would be no funding from NASA. And they didn't necessarily have interest in figuring out basically one of their, you know, biggest, you know, risk factors or technical fears was, you know, when you're a part of the International Space Station, you get a free ride down effectively from the national governments, whether it's the Russians with the Soyuz, the United States with the, you know, Cargo Dragon and the Starliner. These things were, you know, ways to bring back goods. You didn't really have to, you know, pay for them. If you then went independent of the ISS, you were responsible for your your own ride down. And so put the idea, you know, sort of on the shelf again, but then finally really, you know, decided to pursue it in summer 2020. And again, to tie it all together, it's basically this like super long-term fascination with ultimately, if you build this economic use case, this is ultimately what will lead there to be eventually, you know, 10 humans, 100 humans, 1,000 humans that are in low Earth orbit that are generating economic value rather than just being paid for by governments. And, you know, finally decided that I just had to do it myself rather than try and fund somebody else to do it. Tell me a little bit about this in-space manufacturing. So looking at the website, it looks like there's some qualities in space that are different than Earth, which make it a different place to manufacture. Can you give us some like concrete examples of what is better or easier to manufacture in space than down here on Earth? Simplest way to think about it in some ways is there are four fundamental forces of physics. You have the strong and weak nuclear force, you have electromagnetism, and you have gravity. Down here on Earth, gravity is effectively just if it's constant, it's at you know what we consider to be you know one G. It's somewhat arbitrary that you know the the amount of acceleration that you know we feel on you know our surface is just based off of the you know mass of the Earth, but it could easily you know sort of go up or you know down. It's very easy for us to experiment with, you know, seeing what happens when gravity goes up. We do that, you know, relatively all the time in a variety of material processes using either pressure stirring or uh, effectively like centrifuge systems. But at least on the surface of the Earth, for extended periods of time, there's no way to basically decrease gravity. And so when you're up in low Earth orbit, what it gives you access to is effectively, you're not truly obviously escaping your gravity field, but you basically have a centrifugal force that is perfectly equal to Earth's gravitational force. So you effectively are in consistent free fall. And so you effectively experience the equivalent of, you know, microgravity. By microgravity, like what fraction of 1G, I guess, would it be? I believe microgravity is defined as micro, which is 10 to the negative sixth, right? So, you know, 0.000001 Gs. You never technically say zero gravity since it's effectively impossible anywhere in the universe to truly get to zero. But, I mean, you can effectively think of it as, you know, zero gravity, but just the technical term is microgravity. And that type of environment being impossible to obviously, you know, sort of create down here on the surface. And given that it's one of the four fundamental forces of physics, it has a wide you know, variety of effects. Some that are you know, cute uh, in that you, know, you can have the astronaut spinning around and playing his guitar and you know, have the like, you know, water bubbles floating. Some that are you know, sort of more interesting and have you know, commercial applications. Particular in what I would you know, categorize as basically like mesoscopic chemical systems, which is called at the medium level of you know, scale. And I think the easiest way to you know, explain sort of why in these mesoscopic systems you end up having you know, gravity have a significant effect is actually just going to a very macroscopic analogy, which I like to use which is a candle. If in front of us, you basically lit a candle, you put your hand, you know, above the candle, you're, you know, taught as a kid, basically, you can feel that heat because the hot air is rising, right? Or hot air rises in a room. Why does that actually happen? What is the fundamental, basically, physics behind that? When you light the, you know, wick of a candle, what's happening is basically you have a combustion reaction that is introducing thermal energy into the atmosphere around it. That atmosphere is comprised of, you know, nitrogen, oxygen, etc. And so that thermal energy transfers into those, you know, individual nitrogen, oxygen atoms, and basically takes that thermal energy, transfers it into kinetic energy, those atmospheric, you know, basically molecules start to move more quickly. When they start to move more quickly, and anytime you have molecules moving more quickly in a gas, it becomes a less dense gas. Anytime you're inside of a gravity field, and you have that type of acceleration, you basically, you know, have, you know, sedimentation effectively, or, you know, convection that occurs where effectively the less dense gas moves to the top of the room, and the more dense gas moves down. The same thing is true with liquids as well, as well right? So the reason that, you know, the hot air rises from a candle is the same reason why inside of a glass of water, ice, you know, floats to the top of the glass, basically exact same reason. So as that heat basically moves up, 
basically you create negative pressure in that air pressure system. You basically have these, you know, constant currents forming. If we take that same basically candle and you light it inside of a microgravity environment where there's enough oxygen to sustain the, you know, reaction, et cetera, what ends up happening? So you still have the combustion reaction, right? The wick still lights, you know, ignites with the oxygen around it and consumes it. It still creates that thermal energy then gets transferred to kinetic energy to the atmosphere around it. That atmosphere, again, speeds up, it becomes less dense, but now you're not inside of a gravitational field. And so what ends up happening with that less dense gas? It doesn't move around. Instead, it just very steadily disperses its kinetic energy throughout the entire room very slowly through you know, what's known as a you know, basically diffusive motion. So that's a very macroscopic analogy, but let's take it down to the microscopic level. If you're thinking about, you know, sort of trying to get, you know, sort of two molecules to attach to one another. If you remember from high school, the sort of very simple molecular reaction is take two molecules, put them on top of a Bunsen burner. You're basically trying to get above that activation energy, you know, so that you eventually get into a different, you know, sort of potential state, right? And anytime that you're trying to do that on earth, and especially if you have two things that are slightly different molecular weights, those same basically convective, you know, currents end up, you know, effectively dominating where, one of those molecules may end up being, you know, heavier versus lighter. You start to apply thermal energy into the system. It basically, you know, starts to, you know, move those things around with convective currents. And it makes it much more difficult to basically, especially if there are, let's say, like multiple energy states that the you know, reaction can land in, it's very difficult to precisely control which one because you have a lot of this like entropy or chaos in those chemical reactions. Take that, you know, sort of same reaction up to the, you know, microgravity environment to space, much easier to basically introduce thermal energy without basically having these convective currents. Instead, that thermal energy steadily Diffuses, you can precisely basically control that molecular reaction. Okay, so we've gone from an al you know candle analogy to microscopic you know sort of chemical system to okay, well, what does this actually mean you know in the world of like economics and you know capitalism? Why does this you know fucking matter at all? By far, you know, sort of the you know gold standard, let's say, from the International Space Station, or the best case study was performed uh, by Merck. They're one of the top twenty biopharmaceutical companies uh, in the world. They took their blockbuster monoclonal antibody biologic. Uh, it's basically like a cancer drug. It's called Keytruda. It does about twenty-five billion dollars a year of revenue. But anyways, they took it up to the International Space Station, and to provide a very you know simple analogy for how this pharmaceutical is manufactured. On the ground, think of it as almost like a saline solution where you're trying to evaporate things out and little salts are basically like left behind. And what happens when they manufacture it on the ground is as each individual, what is known as a nucleation point forms, basically where a you know, crystal forms for the first time, what ends up happening is because you have those convective currents, more basically salt water ends up attaching to each individual like nucleation or crystallization point and makes it so that each individual crystal ends up being basically very variable in size because you have these convective currents moving the solution around and making it so that these nucleation points, rather than being very uniform, can be you know, sort of a wide range of crystal sizes. So because this is a drug where you try to distribute it to patients and those crystals end up breaking down in your blood very differently depending on the size. Basically, the smaller that the crystal is, the more easily it breaks down in your blood, the larger that it is, the more slowly it breaks down in your blood. The way that they end up basically delivering this to patients is effectively having you come into a clinic and do like a one to four hour basically intravenous drip. On the International Space Station, effectively, what they were able to confirm is when they basically took that same process, because again, there weren't those convective currents, you didn't have solution moving into each you know, nucleation or crystallization point. Instead, you basically had like thousands of individual nucleation points that were all perfectly uniform because basically the little salt crystal would form, there wouldn't be new solution that would flow towards it because you didn't have convective currents. And so what does that mean as a patient? Well, now you know that every single crystal is a very narrow monomodal basically distribution. And so that means you can perfectly predict how it's going to break down in the patient's blood and so instead of having them come into a clinic for one to four hours every single day, you could instead just send them home with a series of syringes or, you know, subcutaneous injections they can take from home. So this $25 billion a year drug, basically, rather than being distributed to, you know, millions of patients in an IV clinic, you know, for hours and hours every single day, instead now has a form where they can basically, you know, send patients at home. And when you think about the actual, like, you know, dosing, you know, a Varda capsule that we bring back with 40 kilograms, this type of material, can dose a very significant patient population far in excess of the, let's say, you know, cost it takes to launch it to orbit, manufacture and bring it back down. So that would by far be, you know, to the blockbuster use case that we would love to, you know, sort of work on. But there's a wide set of other ones where you can basically think of this microgravity physical effect as just changing the performance characteristics of a drug, not in relation to like what disease does it cure, that it does not, you know, get affected by microgravity, but you can think of it more as like, what is the crystal structure or the crystal form? And that typically can affect everything from like the shelf stability, whether it's, you know, room temperature stable, whether or not it can pass the blood-brain barrier, how easily it breaks apart in a patient's blood. And a lot of times those can be some of the like, you know, sort of critical or limiting steps of actually bringing a drug to market. So anyways, you know, long-winded, you know, answer to your question, but tried to start from first principles and work all the way through to commercialization. Did you do a 
full TAM analysis of like all the drugs this could be applied to and like what would be the TAM if you did this or it's just too hard to kind of figure that out? I never believe that much in TAM analyses for any investment that I make. And so I didn't feel that relevant for a company that I'm starting in that like the sort of one line or TAM analysis was we have a monopoly on one of the four fundamental forces of physics in an area where <laughs> chemistry is extremely important to be precise. And this is, you know, an extremely, extremely, you know, large market, far bigger than anything that anybody in the tech industry basically works on. And so it just didn't seem to warrant a super precise analysis, especially because as rocket launch costs continue to decrease, as our cadence continues to increases, the economics change not by like 10, 20%, but change by orders of magnitude. And so therefore the like, you know, TAM you can even tackle also changes by, you know, order of magnitude, given that it's a question of economics and, you know, sort of value, you know, creation. The example that I like to provide, by the way, that, you know, sometimes helps people understand why does crystal structure matter? And if you take ibuprofen, you've almost certainly seen basically, you know, two types of ibuprofen whenever you go into a pharmacy where you have basically like the long lasting ibuprofen that is used for things like, you know, arthritis. And you have the short acting, you know, ibuprofen that is effectively, you know, meant for like a headache. It's still ibuprofen. It's still the same molecule. But the difference is basically one of those molecules is being put inside of a crystalline structure that breaks apart very slowly in your blood. So that arthritis, you have something that basically like lasts 12 hours, but at a very low level or low dosing. And the other one is the exact opposite. It's basically meant to break apart very quickly in your blood and dose you very quickly. So you basically reduce the inflammation in your you know headache or whatever like injury that you have. And so I'm not saying that we're going to be working on ibuprofen anytime soon. But as you start to basically make the economics of you know manufacturing in space cheaper and cheaper, you can start to go after your things that are less critical, let's say, in terms of value proposition where maybe one thing was that, oh my God, we can't bring this drug to market because it needs to pass the blood-brain barrier. Space manufacturing is the only way to like bring this like neurological compound to market that is like extremely high value. And over time, it might be like, hey, like when we make it on the ground, it's like shelf stable at like two degrees Celsius. Like we kind of need a cold chain that's pretty annoying. And then like patients have to put it in their fridge when they get home. But if we make it in space, it's like room temperature stable. And so it's like that's more marginal, but it actually may end up being cheaper over time to actually just, you know, solve it in space rather than actually, you know, have a cold chain down here on the ground. So when Merck, like, I guess, working with someone else did this test on ISS, I guess, how long ago was that? And why didn't that group try to commercialize it? Or was ISS really like holding them back? Merck mostly, you know, ran with it on their own. And they did this in uh, late 2018 and published the results basically at like Q1 2019. So it was again, you know, one of these things in the 2019 timeframe as I was considering the idea it was definitely a, you know, heavyweight where it went from a lot of interesting, you know, sort of theory, tons of great academic experiments. Like this was just true, like, in my opinion, you sort of blockbuster commercial results. Ultimately, there's just like, there was no path forward. Merck didn't have a company, you know, to go work with or partner with to figure out how to scale this up. It's not like they could go to NASA and say, hey, please shut down the International Space Station and instead allow us to take this over and turn it into a drug manufacturing facility. There was no commercial player at the time that had, you know, let's say any path forward in terms of allowing them to work off of the ISS. But I can't comment, let's say, on discussions with various, you know, sort of pharmaceutical partners. But what I can say is the primary principal investigator of that experiment by Merck, the, you know, blockbuster result, did provide a public quote for our launch article that was done by CNN. And he basically explicitly called out, you know, the ISS has been a phenomenal place for us to do early research and validation work. But I find, you know, a platform like Varda that allows us to do this at a you know, greater scale, lower cost and higher cadence, extremely intriguing. And I look forward, I think he said something on the lines of like, I look forward to partnering with them, even if we haven't quite yet today. Clearly, you know, this sort of value proposition is resonating with the groups that had by far the best results from microgravity. When you're making these crystal structures up in lower orbit space, and you bring them back to Earth, there's no like disruption to the structure and changing the gravity environment? Or is it, is it just the way that it's formed that stays permanent in different gravity environments? Think of this as basically like a phase transition where you basically are taking something that was previously a liquid and basically turning it into a solid. Once it has its solid state form, it then maintains that solid state form, even if you put it into a different gravitational field. What mattered was what was basically the acceleration that it was experiencing during the phase transition. So from the transition from liquid to solid, it matters a lot what acceleration is. After it's solid, it maintains its crystal lattice. Now, that is a not entirely perfect answer in that re-entry, not anything here on the ground per se, but the re-entry entry process does put significant g-forces in our current re-entry capsule. So we rip anywhere from like 8 to 11 g's during re-entry. There are certain molecules that the solid state forms effectively aren't stable at that level of acceleration and shock. And so they will lose that structure that you formed in space. But we basically have started out by focusing on what are, you know, prototypically considered small molecules. Small molecules are basically what all drugs were until call it like the 2008-2009 timeframe. Everything from like ibuprofen to 
basically, you know, most drugs on the market were small molecules. In the 2008 through 9 timeframe, basically, they started working on what are known as, you know, larger molecules or biologics, basically things that rather than basically think of it, rather than being formed through orgo chemistry, mixing, you know, chemicals together and heating and cooling them and, you know, creating various chemical reactions. Instead, these things are formed with, you know, closer to biological processes. Think like something that either looks like, you know, yeast fermentation or eventually, you know, even ultimately up to something, you know, closer to what looks like a human cell. Those types of things for sure are more sensitive to G forces. And so we won't be able to tackle that type of, you know, product today. We would have to improve upon our reentry vehicle capabilities where it can more precisely control G forces by basically having active aerodynamic controls. So, you know, across all these drug categories, once you create that salt tape form down here on the ground, totally fine to sustain it. It's, it's actually more the process of reentry itself, less so being down here on the ground that affects it. You mentioned reentry a couple of times. It's kind of interesting. Like, I feel like space manufacturing should not have to solve the reentry problem. It feels like someone else would have solved that. But is it a really hard problem? Like, are you just hitting things against Earth's atmosphere? Like, how do you kind of go around thinking about reentry? You know, when I was considering starting the company, I fundamentally realized that the space manufacturing problem is a reentry problem, that that was the fundamental, you know, sort of limiter in a lot of ways. The actual space manufacturing portion of it, if you look at what we're doing to these various pharmaceutical compounds, it's complex for sure. It's not a you know, sort of trivial problem, but you know it's clearly been demonstrated. It's possible to be done on the International Space Station. And people are definitely you know mixing together complex fluids. They're recreating some of the industrial processes that are done here on Earth. You know in a microgravity environment. So like one of the simple examples is like you know when you mix fluids sometimes down here on Earth, you rely on gravity to basically bring them into a beaker and you stir them around. Up there, you have to rely more on like you know microfluidics and capillary action and things like that. But point being that that is like difficult engineering, but not anything too crazy. But, you know, the reentry problem and especially doing that at, you know, sort of high cadence was just not something that anybody, you know, had really done. Because if you think about it, why come back from space? Like, there's just not any particular reason to. The only time that we've really come back from space on a consistent basis is to bring the humans back. Because, like, you know, humans do want to eventually return to their life, you know, down here on Earth. But other than that, there's nothing to bring back from there. If you, you know, are communicating with your satellites, you communicate via radio. The satellites themselves, it's easier to just let them burn up and send up a new one than like, you know, try and bring it back down. So there really hasn't been any like, you know, non-government use case for bringing things back. The only, you know, times where small-scale reentry capsules like Varda's have really been landed are two things. One, in the more recent years, including almost exactly 24 hours ago, asteroid sample return missions, where uh, NASA, for example, yesterday landed in the Utah desert with this mission called OSIRIS-REx, where they basically went out to an asteroid called Bennu. They launched in, I want to say, 2017, landed at Bennu in like 2020. 19 and then I think basically left Bennu in like late 2020 to come back to Earth. There, you are trying to explicitly bring something back from space. It's a small asteroid sample, right? Or the only other time really, and the Japanese did it twice with Hayabusa, and also NASA did it once with Stardust in uh, 2004. But anyways, other than these asteroid sample returns missions, which have happened four times in the last, call it like 20 years, before that, the only other time that we really did re-entry capsules, small scale, that didn't have humans on board regularly, uh, was actually in the early days, at the same time as uh, the Apollo program was going. People don't know this, don't appreciate this, let's say, but there was a parallel program going that had almost basically as large of a budget as the Apollo program and just as much headcount called the you know, Corona spy satellite program, where basically in the very early days before we had powerful enough radios to communicate with satellites and be able to actually downlink photos, we would actually send satellites up to space to take photos of the Soviet Union. We'd take photos on physical Kodak film, reel that film into basically small reentry capsules, and then re-enter those reentry capsules and actually pick them up with basically like military bombers and actually use a skyhook to pick the parachute up basically out of the air once the reentry capsule is down on the ground. And we flew about, I believe it was 134 of those Krona reentry capsules. And I believe like something like 120 of them were recovered. So they had a really high success rate. So clearly it was possible to solve this reentry problem. Humanity had obviously done it about 50 years prior, but in the past 20 years, really nobody had solved a reentry problem. Is it a difficult problem? Absolutely. There's a reason why the United States has yet to field an operational hypersonic boost glide interceptor or you know weapon system you know from space, and that it is effectively you know a system that we'd be trying to re-enter. It's just an extremely complex environment. In some ways, I like to joke: getting to space is definitely hard, but maybe coming back from space is even harder because when you're getting to space, really the rocket, what it's doing is it's basically going up and then it's going sideways, super super fast. And in order to come back from space, you could do two things: you could send a fully fueled Falcon 9 all the way to space, somehow get it up there, and just use that to slow you down. 
Or you can take the cheaper way coming back and instead just hit the atmosphere and basically use the atmosphere to slow you down. But when you're up there, you're basically going Mach 25. And so Mach 25, hitting the atmosphere at those speeds introduces some pretty complex factors. There's basically you know, three main things that you get hit with. One is effectively like G-forces or shock forces. So if you've ever been on like a commercial 747 flight, you you know hit a little pocket of gravity. It absolutely obviously creates some level of G-forces. Imagine that, but obviously at Mach 25, those G-forces are far more intense. Two, there's a thermal load. You know, if you've ever watched like the Tom Hanks Apollo, you know, film, he's coming back through reentry. There's all that, you know, basically plasma around him and, you know, basically that heat. You get to higher than the temperature of the sun on the actual capsule's heat shield. And then the third is because you're going so fast, you're actually separating the individual atoms in the atmosphere from one another. So if you have like paired together nitrogen or oxygen, you're actually creating highly charged ions that actually form the fourth state of matter. So rather than being a liquid, a solid, or a gas, you actually form a plasma. And plasma also interacts, you know, with aerodynamic vehicles and very difficult to you know predict ways and so the combination of all of those three factors makes the re-entry environment an incredibly difficult you know environment to engineer for and so when we thought about you know varda especially in the early days we fundamentally thought about it in some ways as like solve the re-entry problem first because if you prove to everybody that you can re-enter on a regular basis then the in-space manufacturing is sort of a walk in the park in comparison have you proven that have you done a test re-entry we had our first launch June 12th of this year. We did have some planned dates in both July and September to re-enter. But, you know, unfortunately, we're still working through some government partner collaborations in order to, you know, have the approval to land, hopefully relatively soon. So the vehicle's ready to land and ready to do the test. But uh, unfortunately, in the United States, it's not as simple as that in order to bring a re-entry capsule back. When you talk about doing the space manufacturing, I'm wondering about how much actual area do you need to, like, do this manufacturing and how will it actually scale? Like at some point, are you going to have a full factory up there and you plan to do it all automated so there's no humans? You're doing like a basically fully uh, human-free flight, right? We'll definitely be automated, you know, for now. But, you know, referencing, if you remember my very first answer around why, you know, work on Varda, it's because there is eventually that motivation, you know, to have humans on there. Even if you look at the most automated pharmaceutical or semiconductor manufacturing facilities on the ground today, they do on some occasional basis do require human maintenance. And so, you know, I do think there will be a tipping point for Varda where today it absolutely does not make sense for economics to have humans up there. But over time, as you get to a large enough, basically, manufacturing facility, you will have justification for humans up there. And that's how you get from one human to 10 humans to, you know, hundreds of humans. When you think about how much space that we need, especially for some of the early sort of pharmaceutical drug candidates that we're working on, people underappreciate how much of an actual you know drug they're taking when they you know come in to you know take something. The example that I sometimes like to provide is if you look at the Pfizer COVID vaccine, entire United States consumption in 2021, 2022, which was I believe on the order of about 600 million doses. If you look at the actual like active pharmaceutical ingredients, the thing that is you know actively in- interacting with your body which is the thing that Varda works on, that primary ingredient for all of those 600 million doses in the United States effectively filled up only two milk gallon jugs. Now, there's two milk gallon jugs of like mRNA crystals then get distributed out into like, you know, hundreds of millions of individual doses so that when you go in, you have this like saline syringe at the you know clinic where you got your COVID vaccine, but it only has a very, very small amount of that, you know, sort of RNA crystal. That secondary manufacturing process in terms of putting the primary ingredient into a saline syringe, that for Varda still happens on the ground. We just basically focus on those like two milk gallon jugs. So for our first, call it, you know, 10 plus missions, the reentry capsule is about a meter in diameter and can bring back about 40 to 50 kilograms of materials. There is a very wide set of basically like, you know, pharmaceutical candidates that we can pursue that 40 to 50 kilograms once a quarter far, you know, outweighs basically, you know, the total patient, you know, population consumption, again, of the primary ingredient. Our pharmaceutical partners will take that primary ingredient, that crystal, you know, structure that we have formed, and then go send that to a secondary CDMO manufacturing facility, where then that gets put into, you know, a gel capsule, a tablet, a saline syringe, an IV drip, you know, however that particular, you know, basically drug is uh, administered to the patient. But that part does not have to happen in space. So yes, for sure, obviously, over time, we will need to, you know, get larger, but there's no reason why at our current scale, we couldn't make this into a, you know, sort of multi-billion dollar company regularly bringing, you know, drugs to market. Obviously, I, you know, fantasize about the day when I get to send up something that is like the size of a skyscraper up into space and have that, you know, sort of manufacturing, but that is not, you know, a requirement for Varda to IPO anytime soon. What do you think the requirement is for Varda to, uh, you know, get to a decent scale? What size sort of building or shuttle or, or, you know, you'd have a permanent base, right? In lower earth orbit, right? I think Varda could be a multi-billion dollar company, you know, flying, you know, six to seven missions a year of like 300 kilogram satellites, basically. And I don't think we need to go, you know, larger than that in order to, you know, hit that. 
if you look at, you know, some of the drug candidates that, you know, we're working on with pharmaceutical partners, yeah, the dosing on a per patient basis does not require something that is a permanent, you know, station or, you know, anything much larger than what we're developing today. But, you know, in some ways, if you want to think about, you know, sort of Varda's business model or provide a, you know, parallel with the way that we end up partnering with our pharmaceutical clients and the actual contract structure looks very net similar to groups like if you're familiar with like Ginkgo Bioworks, Epsilera, Halozyme, where effectively we partner with our pharmaceutical partners and the particular drugs that they're working on that have crystal structure, you know, basically issues. And we get a combination of both milestone payments based off of the actual, you know, deliverables that we bring to them, but as well as effectively, you can think of it as like, you know, royalties in the actual or equities, basically in the drug that we work on so that when it gets brought to market, we, you know, become a partner in the actual, you know, drug. And so, yeah, I, you know, I don't think you'll see us working on anything much, much larger than what we're working on today in the next three, four or five years. But for sure, over time, you know, after this company is you know, much larger than it is today, definitely look forward to kicking off the, the V2 and the V3 that will all steadily get larger and larger. But for now, I would say it's more higher cadence of our current sized infrastructure and really improve the economics of that. And that will be more than, you know, plenty to, you know, get us through to being a public company. So the order of operations, if I can just summarize, is like nailing what you're currently doing, the 300 kilogram sort of payloads, and you're trying to get higher cadence of that, improve the economics. Where are you on the economics? I mean, if you can give us a range, like where do you need to be versus where you are today? In this current V1 architecture, you can basically think of like our all-in cost for our very first mission that we did, about like $12 million, you know, a pop. There's no reason why by like mission four or five or so, we'll be able to get that down to like, you know, five or six million. And what we're really ultimately aiming for is by mission 10, there's no reason why basically with a bit of reusability, why we shouldn't be able to basically get this down to like, you know, sub two, two and a half million dollars mission. At that price point with the amount of pharmaceuticals that we're manufacturing, at that point, we'd be far more focused on like basically scale up of that two and a half million emission more so than actually continuing to improve the economics. And all of that is basically like assuming that launch costs basically stay flat, you know, where they are today. That's the you know, sort of cost curve that we're you know looking to ride down. Obviously, we're still in our first mission, so we're still in like the most expensive parts of that you know sort of cost curve. But you know, thankfully, beyond just the pharmaceutical business that we've been talking about, we also have a ton of support you know from the DoD to utilize our capsule as effectively as a you know hypersonic testing mechanism. So that also offsets a lot of the like upfront R and D and NRE, uh, and also establishes let's say like a base cadence of the number of flights that we do every single year. So it makes it so each marginal pharmaceutical flight is you know, sort of much cheaper, and we can get to that scale that gets us to that you know sort of cost structure much more easily than if we were to just rely on the pharmaceutical business alone. That's fascinating. So the DOD is helping you with these startup costs. 100%. Varda would not exist if not for the DOD. <laughs> it's kind of interesting the like the way you describe it, especially with the two milk jugs, which is like a really interesting data point. It seems like the dollars per kilogram of pharmaceutical kind of, I guess, end product is just super duper high, right? Like there's probably nothing like else like it. I guess outside pharma, is there something else that it does have this kind of extreme high dollar per kilogram of manufacturing kind of output that you think is viable in space manufacturing? Other than illicit drugs, there's basically nothing on earth that sells for more than $100 a, you know, a kilo other than basically biopharmaceuticals. So, Well, illicit drugs are also, also a pharma product, Yeah, right? yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And even then, there's only a very small handful of extremely high purity illicit drugs that even sell for that amount per kilo. So... There's not really, you know, anything else now. It's sort of the realization that we came to relatively quickly was as we were looking at basically like value generation, where we could, you know, sort of attack various markets. There's been a ton of interesting work around fiber optics, semiconductors in space. But at the end of the day, you get stuck with just this mass problem. Like, you know, as much as like the A5 chip in your phone, you know, in the iPhone is very valuable and very light it just still pales in comparison to drugs. It's just like orders and orders of magnitude, you know, sort of difference. And so it's just a lot easier to deal with the economics of space when you're talking about, okay, $5,000 a kilogram launch costs, which, you know, end up meaning, okay, your total cost of emission all baked in are like 25, 30, 40,000. Cause obviously, you know, you don't want launch costs to, you know, represent too small or too large of a portion of your total, you know, sort of flight costs. And it's just a lot easier to work with compounds that are a million dollars a kilo or $500,000 a kilo than it is to work with something that's, you know, far less than that. Yeah, that's interesting. What is, I guess, outside pharma, what is position number two? Is it, is it fiber optics or is it semiconductors or something else? I think it's such a steep drop off that like in some ways nobody knows. And it is interesting because there are like, there's like weirdly, there's like this whole group at like Stanford that is like extremely obsessed with, you know, semiconductors in space. They like try to invite me as a speaker. And I basically told them, well, I was like, I'm going to tell you that I don't think this is a good idea. So I don't think you like want me as a speaker. And so they basically like hung up on me and I was like, okay, I mean, I don't know what you want from me. There are some like, you know, smaller startup, you know, companies actually like trying to focus on this, but yeah, it's, I just like, I have a really hard time. Like if you look at it, actually like our chief science officer that now obviously, you know, entirely works on pharmaceuticals. He came from the semiconductor 
industry. Like, you know, we're like pretty deeply familiar. We definitely like studied it, you know, quite extensively of just like, you know, is there something that we could do here? But yeah, I'm not saying that there isn't value to be had. It's just like, you're never going to build a business with good unit economics on it in, in the next decade, you know, 2030 and beyond starships online, lunar base, you know, whatever, all bets are off then. Cause you know, now you might be talking about like 25, 50, a hundred dollars a kilogram. Sure. Then there's going to be a ton of stuff. I mean, but then at that point, you're also talking about like, people are going to like start brewing wine in space just for the novelty of it. Right. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see people paying a lot of money for that, like wine, <laughs> space brewed wine. Yeah, I would pay for <laughs> yeah, space wine. There's like a bottle of space wine that's sold for, I don't know, $100,000, something like that. You know, so it's like, it exists. Maybe a space engagement ring, like something that's just like expensive for the point of it. Space rocks. <laughs> yeah, space rocks. I once heard someone say like, it might be interesting to 3D print like hearts in space. Is that a real viable type thing? Or was that just like some like sci-fi talk? You know, I think that's one that is more likely we like solve it terrestrially. I'm not saying it's like totally impossible, but that's just like a pretty difficult, you know, problem in that, you know, if you remember, we were talking about basically like, you know, stability, G-forces, loading, et cetera, during reentry. Reentry is not that kind on a heart that's inside a human, let alone, you know, one that's outside of a human. So a little <laughs> bit of a trickier problem. So it is something that like NASA has been investing a lot into. They like recently did this release about talking about like somebody building like a like 3D printed like meniscus up in space. But yeah, while we're interested in biopharmaceuticals and the you know, sort of healthcare industry, I think the like organ and tissue printing space is going to be a tougher one as well. What's meniscus? Like a ligament uh, inside of your knee. Um, and so they basically like 3D printed a ligament in space. Oh, that's interesting. I guess less constraints on like what G-forces it can take maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like an easier problem than a heart. A heart is a very hard problem to you know, solve. Ligament is a yeah, step along the way, let's say. Lower stakes too. Yeah. Yeah, lower stakes. So when do we get to a level where like you need humans in space to run this manufacturing? It seems like... The tendency is probably to try to automate as much of it as possible, right? I'm not claiming that it's in any you know, sort of short time frame, but if you look at the set of companies that are out on the market today commercializing various use cases, I think Varda will be the first to have an economic use case you know, sort of for it. You know, if I were to try and put a prediction, I would say it's like no earlier than 2029, no later than 2035 you know, for Varda to you know, justify that, where... What you'll initially see is basically in relation to the improvement to our economics, you basically start to want to invest into reusability. The first thing that's very easy to reuse is the actual reentry capsule. That thing literally comes back down on the ground. You can analyze it. You can see basically what it takes to refurbish, start to engineer around basically making it you know, sort of reusable. The second step is the actual basically satellite and manufacturing you know, portion of the satellite. That right now we basically burn up after each orbit. But instead, what you could eventually imagine doing is instead actually leaving that as a somewhat more fixed station in orbit and instead bringing reentry capsules basically with raw goods to the manufacturing station, exchanging it for fabricated pharmaceuticals, and basically bringing it back down. Initially, I think what you'll see is basically just like, a you know, similar to how Starlink has a constellation of a thousand satellites, you might see a constellation of Varda satellites that are a bit larger, maybe they're a thousand kilograms a piece, and one of them is small molecule focused, and one of them is biologics focused, one of them is dealt with more toxic compounds, one has more, you know, thermal processes and super high temperatures, right? And so you'll see like a constellation, and basically depending on which manufacturing process your drug is most suitable for, you'll get, you know, sent to that one. And initially, those will probably be distributed. But once you start to get to on the order of like, you know, sort of several thousand kilograms on each of these, it will start to make sense to aggregate them. And then basically, likely initially just have like a human visitor that comes by maybe like one week every, you know, three months or something like that does a bunch of like, you know, manual repairs and things like that, given that, yes, automation is really, you know, phenomenal. You know, I think we're getting better and better at robotics down here on the ground, but there's still some level of like fine motor control that, you know, humans can have in decision-making that you just can't yet replicate. And I don't think you will be able to, you know, anytime soon. And so I think that's what it probably looks like is like, we like start to pay for like a crew dragon to, you know, bring somebody close to our station, do a spacewalk. And then once you're doing that, like rather than one week every three months, you do it one week a month, and then it's like two weeks a month. And then all of a sudden it turns out that somebody just needs to live close by. And so then they actually like hook into our station for water and for oxygen and things like that. And then all of a sudden you have like one human living there. And I think, you know, that stuff is probably called 2028, 2029 timeframe at the soonest. That would be sort of the best possible trajectory, you know, for Varda. Definitely, you know, a lot of work in order to make that happen. So initially you're not reusing the factory? Everything is one-time use. 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. Everything is one time use today. Basically, we burn up the whole main, like you know, you know, basically satellite and factory and everything after each use. Just basically, just make it as simple as possible because the docking and rendezvous problem of making it so you can reuse the satellite and you can bring new reentry capsules to it is like a hundred million dollar engineering problem. And so easier to not tackle that today and instead just do basically disposable. Just like you know, Elon with Falcon, you know, one in the early days of Falcon Nine, it was fully disposable end to end. Same thing here. Just keep it simple, disposable end to end, prove it out, and then start to focus on reusability. Yeah. It's kind of funny on the on the ground everything is reusable by default and in, in spaces everything is unreusable by default everything is not reusable by default it burns yeah. up when it hits the atmosphere yeah that's interesting except for re-entry capsules what are the timelines towards this cost curve you talked about i think 12 million down to like two is that like 2029 as well to 2035 range oh no, no no that cost curve is much you know shorter we'll have it down to like two or three million a launch by like 2025 that's a pretty short time frame and the main levers there are the reusability. Is that the main lever to get it from 12 to 2? The main lever is, you know, primarily there was a set of, you know, components and things that we bought off the shelf to get us up to flight basically as quickly as possible that are over-engineered for our mission. But we preferred to purchase them, one, because of speed to flight, because we could buy something off the shelf, and two, better to over-engineer the first handful of missions, get data sets about what the actual environment looks like, what it's experiencing, and then you can engineer basically you know, around that actual flight data. And so by 2025, you'll notice that basically like our satellites start to look much less capable, basically, as we just focus on the minimum level of capability, rather than the first handful of satellites being you know, sort of over-engineered to ensure basically success. So that cost curve is a relatively short-term cost curve. Your first launch this year was June 12th, right? Yeah, June 12th at uh, 310 PST. Yeah, so and you started the company in 2020, right? Technically, yeah, I met my co-founder August 2020, incorporated November 19th, you know, 2020, but we didn't really open our office doors until January 19th, 2021. So, you know, when you look at like, you know, a significant number of people working on it full-time is really, let's say, Jan 2021. Wow, so still two and a half years to our first launch. I mean, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Like for a space company to do that seems like a very short period. Yeah, Credit to my co-founder, sort of core cultural value of Varda was you know, the trains take off on time. Even if they don't have all the features that you want, even if it's a little bit riskier than you want, at the end of the day, the trains take off on time. And so I think it's that iterative hardware, you know, sort of approach and obsession with schedule that's led to our ability to you know, sort of get to flight so quickly. And in some ways, just the maturity of the space ecosystem relative to a decade ago. There's just a set of components that we were able to buy off the shelf that groups like SpaceX were not able to in 2008 that made their life you know, sort of far more difficult. And so, uh, yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, we were able to get to flight you know, so quickly. And for sure, we want to, you know, continue to improve, you know, from our first flight, definitely, you know, things that we learned about the satellite and, you know, about the mission already that we definitely want to fix by the second and the third and the fourth, but better to learn those and get to flight more quickly rather than like, I think a lot of companies just get stuck in this like engineering analysis paralysis state, constantly trying to improve upon the satellite before they ever actually fly it. But it, like, it turns out the best way to learn about your you know, designs is just go fly them. I know the software companies that don't launch in two and a half years, let alone space companies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what do you think the future of the space industry looks like? Like 10 years from now, what do you think we're going to be talking about that's already real? Like 10 years ago, like things like Starlink weren't real and like, you know, it sounded like science fiction and reusable rockets weren't real. What do you think 10 years from now will be like, yeah, this is normal. This is all happening apart from Varda. I think you'll have north of 100 humans in orbit, you know, on a you know, permanent basis. I mean, I call it that being the minimum number and maybe that's stretching up to, you know, 1500 or maybe even 2000. So, you know, sort of small village in low earth orbit being quite sustained. And I think call it the number of people that we basically have on the ISS today, call it between like, you know, nine to 17 being a part of a lunar base. And I think both those things will feel, you know, extremely normal, just like the International Space Station has been permanently manned since, you know, 1999, 24-7. I think call it in the 2028 timeframe or, you know, 2032 timeframe, you'll basically have the initial basically, you know, built out lunar base that from then on will be, you know, permanently manned. And again, those types of things, they're going to be government run to start, just like the ISS basically proved out the early days of low Earth orbit economy by you know, being subsidized by the federal government. The same thing will be true for the lunar base. Groups like Varda and Axiom Space and VAST will take over basically like you know, low Earth orbit because you no longer need federal incentives to build there. That'll just be something that is done by commercial entities. And you know, sort of NASA and the federal government will take over the next frontier. But I think lunar you know, sort of surface will absolutely be that. 
And so I think that will feel very, very normal um, as well as, you know, I think people have talked fancifully, obviously about Mars for an extended period of time, but nobody's designing a vehicle that is currently, you know, going to Mars with humans on it, right? Like that is something that people talk about in theory is a future thing that humanity might want to do, but nothing is currently being worked on. I think like 10 years from today, just as we see that today people are designing things to go to the moon in 2032, you will see things that are actually being designed uh, to go to Mars. As you said, right, the, the key thing is the economic incentive. So we need to figure out that, that piece of it for Mars. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah that, that one I think for sure will be a little bit harder to figure out relative to like low Earth orbit of the moon. But I think if you have really established trading posts, let's say, on, uh, you know, in low Earth orbit of the moon, the like moon to Mars problem, in my opinion, is a significantly easier problem than the Earth to Mars problem. In that if you have established basically trading posts in low Earth orbit in the moon, it means at that point you have a functioning society that has likely significant capabilities. Like if you look at the International Space Station, they have a robot arm, they have humans up there. They for sure have like microscopes and a decent amount of lab equipment, but like that's about it. They don't have like bulldozers. They don't have raw materials. They don't have the ability to create large scale structures. If you have a lunar base, you're talking about the idea of like something that, you know, is obviously permanently settled, is built, and you're luckily talking about industrial equipment that, you know, can actually operate in, in, you know, the lunar environment. And you're talking about a shit ton of material that is available to you in the form of everything from like the lunar ice caps on the moon to, you know, regolith that you can actually use to actually start to build macro structures whether in low Earth orbit, lunar orbit, you know, or somewhere or cislunar or something like that. And so that then allows you to now build massive, massive, you know, sort of spaceships without having the penalty of having to send them from the surface of the Earth. And so even without the economic incentive for Mars, if you have the economic incentives on low Earth orbit in the moon, the Mars problem just becomes so much easier relative to, you know, today. Just sending stuff, you know, it's heavy down here. <laughs> uh, there's a reason why. have that, you know, Yeah, I mean, atmosphere, gravity, big gravity well, lots of things. It's just like, this is not a fun place. We, you know, Earth is barely on the edge of like, you know, you just get a little heavier and a little thicker atmosphere and the rocket equation shifts from like barely being able to get out to like literally, you know, chemical rocket engines not having enough propulsion to actually, you know, get out of the atmosphere. I think people forget about this. I forget the exact number, but it's something on the order of like, if you increased Earth's mass by about 40% and increased basically the atmospheric density by about 40%, no chemical rocket engine that is available to humanity today would be able to escape orbit. Basically, wow. you would need more fuel than basically how much uh, you know fuel the like engine can take. And so we are like basically as difficult as it gets for what explosions can allow you to do. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. What is the uh, yeah? Obviously, Vada is doing kind of pharma manufacturing. What's the what's the next use case that would have economics in space like, like outside kind of communication? Yeah, you know, I always like to think of these companies as like, you know, sort of generations of companies that form the infrastructure that enables the next generation, right? If you look at like the early days of the internet, companies like Amazon building out AWS in 2008 is ultimately what enabled the next generation of like Uber, Airbnb, etc. So that rather than having to build their own data centers, they can focus on ride sharing of cars and home sharing of, you know, homes. And I kind of think of space the same way where you had that first generation of companies like SpaceX, like Planet Labs, they built up the initial infrastructure, you know, for the space economy, uh, whether it be sort of rockets or, you know, more robust satellite supply chains. And then for a while, until those companies were successful, like I mentioned, in 2012 through 15, there was no interesting companies being founded because there just weren't other use cases that made any sense. And if you look at Founders Fund, we basically invested a lot into aerospace from like 2009 through 12, and then basically took almost like a 10-year break. And a part of it was you just needed reusable rockets to then enable the second generation of companies. And similar to the first generation, I don't think there's like an infinite set of use cases. I think there is this like in-space manufacturing use case. I do think that there's like this in-space, basically like gas station, servicing, repairs, taxing, basically use case where... Now that you have a higher density of basically like vehicles on the highway, you can now justify basically putting gas stations on the highway versus like before you couldn't. And then I don't think there really is like much else. Like, you know, I love that there's a lot of people working on a wide variety of other, you know, sort of commercial use cases, but I don't think anything else makes sense in today's generation. When those two business models succeed, whether it's in-space manufacturing and these like in-space gas station servicing taxi systems, then I do think it then enables things like asteroid mining, lunar ice mining, et cetera. Like the way that I like to describe it is like, you know, people always talk about like, wouldn't it be amazing if you took like, you know, 10 tons of, you know, ice from the moon and put it into low earth orbit. And I always tell people, I'm like, who's going to use that ice today? Even if you had an asteroid that you brought into like low earth orbit today, there's nobody up there that is like, you know, built for or uses tons and tons of water on a daily basis other than the International Space Station. 
But if you have something like Varda succeeding, where you have like a massive factory or you have a really large gas station that is consistently refueling satellites, that is an entity that would very happily buy, you know, sort of lots and lots and tons and tons of water. And so, you know, I think right now there isn't really anything that interesting outside of basically those two, you know, sort of in space. But in another five, six years, as things like Varda and these like space gas stations succeed, I do think then there start to be more, you know, sort of economic use cases that open up. When you say space gas stations, are you, do you literally mean like, like there's people sending gas to space and then distributing it within satellites that are already in space? Like that's actually a viable market? Yeah, yeah. There's people, there's people actively working on this today that have like, you know, contracts from, you know, Space Force, Air Force, NASA, NASA for like initial, you know, sort of demonstration missions, everything from, yeah, refueling geostationary satellites to extending the lifetime of, you know, satellites that are in low Earth orbit. Yeah, it's again, I think the easiest analogy to think about is just like, when there weren't that many cars on the highway, it was just easier for everybody to carry their own gas. Versus when there should be lots of cars on the highway, it's a little easier for there to be a centralized gas station. And instead, you just, you know, refill anytime you're kind of close to the gas station. Apart from getting water from an asteroid or the the moon, is there any other, like, I guess there's H3 mining on the moon. Are there other things that would be useful to have in low Earth orbit? like steel or something? Yeah, I mean, I think when you start to think about, you know, helium-3 or like, you know, platinum or things like that, those would then just be more like returning down to Earth. Obviously, you know, hopefully we have like lots yeah. of nuclear reactors in space over time, but it's more likely that the helium-3 and platinum from an asteroid, you know, more gets like returned down to Earth versus like used up in space, basically. So yeah, I think outside of those, you know, then then there's definitely more of a drop-off and it's kind of also probably hard to perfectly predict, you know, sort of that far out. Then you start to probably get into the world of, you know, what looks a little bit more like the you know, United States colony were like the forward base on Mars and like discovering some sort of natural resource that Mars has very you know plentiful amounts of that you know somewhere else in the solar system isn't and so they end up sending back you know sort of trade ships you know back to back to Earth but yeah that stuff is like so fanciful that it's kind of hard to you know perfectly predict but there's surprisingly there's not like a infinite set you know there's not an infinite list of business models after the ones that I articulated right like if you go from in space no. manufacturing there's for sure like tourism hotels etc but you know I don't find that to be like that that interesting you have the gas stations you then have like you know resource extraction for use in space like you know water etc or you have resource extraction for use on earth like helium-3 and then you know beyond that yeah i'm not sure not sure about that do you think it'll always be extremely uncomfortable living in space or do you think over time there'll be artificial gravity and other things and it could be like pretty comfortable living there there, there will be a four seasons in space at some point. It'll take some you know, time, but for sure. I mean, you know, there's no reason why you can't replicate all of the niceties that we have down here on Earth, basically in space, and get all the you know, benefits of being in space. You know, I definitely imagine a day where like, rather than people you know, coming to South Florida to retire, they instead you know, go to uh, you know, the surface of the moon, given that you just have lower gravity, and so you can be more mobile. And so you might not be able to like, run around and uh, play golf uh, you know, in your full 18 holes if you're like 95 and you know, bones are cracking a little bit down here on earth but you sure as hell can do it when like gravity's a lot less and so yeah i think i think you know if anything there may be preferential comfort in space you know over time uh, it is not comfortable today to be clear like if you you know read <laughs> uh the twin study that they did with uh mark kelly and um Oh, gosh, that's the senator and his brother. Anyways, his twin brother. I forget his twin's name. But anyways, the two twins basically went up to space. Uh, Mark, who went up for a year. Man, if you read his book, his retelling of like the first like week when he was back after being up in space for a year is just brutal. Like it is just everything in his body was not working correctly when he was down mm. here. And like it took a long time to get back to normal. All right. That's a, that's a good point to maybe come to a stop, both the four seasons and the, <laughs> the one week of pain. Uh, this is a super interesting chat, Delian. Thanks for taking the time. Sweet, sweet. Thanks so much for having me, guys. It was great, Delian. We're cheering for you. You're building a great company. Thanks, Raj. Raj, that was a super interesting conversation. What was your favorite part? I did not expect that, honestly. Like, I, I was looking at the website beforehand of Varda, and I was pretty confused, honestly. I didn't have no idea, like, what exactly they do. It sounded very, like, far-fetched, to be honest. It was like, I thought, well, there's a bunch of investors wait, wasting money on this one. And uh, <laughs> Wow, you came in as a skeptic. I came in as a skeptic, absolutely, yeah. You know, and then Delhi doesn't have a background either in, like, space or anything. So it's not like, you know... I come in as a fellow entrepreneur looking at it, and I'm like, this seems a bit like, you know, science fiction type stuff. We've seen a lot of companies out there who like, you know, they just raise a bunch of money for something that sounds great, that could be a decade out. And then they all eventually what happens, like, you know, like a magic leap, right? They, they never make it past the chasm, right? And so yeah, of course. I think being a skeptic is probably the default here, probably, you know, just based on the history. But 
I mean, Delanian won me over. I mean, he he knows the science inside out. He knows what he's working on. The application is very clear. The economics are very clear to him as well. And I came away thinking, well, this should happen. Like, there's going to be a bunch of problems to solve, mm-hmm. but everything he said made a lot of sense. And it seemed like he's picked the right narrow application for a startup to work on. Yeah. What were your thoughts? Yeah, you know, the pharma thing is kind of interesting. In hindsight, it seems obvious, I guess, after that conversation that, hey, this is just the highest dollars per kilogram use case here. What's interesting is, I think, as a non-pharma person, I had no idea that the gravity of the conditions while like crystallization was happening can be a huge difference. I think it makes sense. I had always thought that the applications would be like carbon nanotubes or like something like that. So it's kind of interesting to go, hey, actually, there's just like simpler not future sci-fi kind of applications in space. Yeah, it's for sure. I mean, it, it sounded like it was something that was well understood. They already did some testing in the ISS and like there was some promising early trials there. And the fact that they were able to launch something within, you know, two and a half years of starting. Yeah, that's crazy. It's really promising. That's promising for the whole space ecosystem. Because I, I think one thing that Starlink is, in particular is proving out is like there's like real applications in space that people maybe haven't thought of before or haven't really invested in before. And so that probably allows for a lot more space companies to go out and try some new stuff. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that you hear about these experiments being done on the ISS, but you kind of just assume that nothing actually useful is coming out of it. But it actually sounds like basically the kind of research part and the science part of it was massively de-risked by kind of the work that the governments did in ISS. So this could be a massive kind of dividend from that work. Absolutely, yeah. You know the space better than I do, but there's probably a lot of interesting applications coming out of that. It's great that there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out of it. And I like the fact that it's really focused on a near-term goal and a clear ROI for a clear customer, you know? So that is really important. One thing that was kind of funny to me is like, his initial thinking was like, how do we make a space civilization, right? How do we get humans on space? But the application is not very human intensive. And I actually think there's a reasonable likelihood that robots will get better faster than like the requirement, right? Like by 2029, there's a reasonable chance there'll be a reasonable humanoid robot that's got enough articulation and enough kind of pre-programmed kind of AI skills that they can like basically do this manufacturing use case, right? Because we're already getting rid of humans in manufacturing on Earth. So it's kind of interesting kind of race that like we're trying to put humans in space, but then we're making robots that are good enough to do these things in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for sure, there's going to need to be parallel track. I mean, you're right. Robotic manufacturing is much better now on Earth, but you're always going to need some human for like when the robots break, right, in general? For now. Yeah, yeah, for now, yeah. So even probably the robot factories here have some level of humans in it. And he, he admitted the same. So, but yeah, humans are very expensive, right? And so there's so much work going on in like robotic aviation with drones and things like that and autonomous vehicles. So it's all going to kind of come together. So it's exciting to see that, right? There's a really good book called Case for Mars. And there's definitely like a separate kind of mindset, which is very much like, hey, we just need to get to Mars, <laughs> which is like, you know, the only place it makes sense to put humans uh, for prolonged periods is Mars because you've got the atmosphere protecting you from cosmic rays and you've got all of these kind of other kind of built-in systems there that like humans kind of rely on like gravity and all that kind of stuff. So at least Vada is much more in the camp of like, let's make low Earth orbit work. Whereas this is other camp, which is like, let's skip a low Earth orbit and let's make Mars work. Uh, I think actually like if either of them work, it helps each other, which Delian made that point. But it's kind of interesting to see these kind of opposing viewpoints. What's the economic argument for Mars? Honestly, it's much more of the almost like a land argument that, hey, there's another, Mars has as much land as the continents on Earth. So it's more of an argument of, okay, we have a massive landmass there and we should go make it work. Eventually we can. It's not, it's less of a, it's more of a colonial argument than like a purely economic argument, I would say. Yeah, 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 I, I can see that. Makes sense. Well, that was a lot of fun. Very dense conversation too. He gave a lot of information in a short period of time. It was fun to listen to. 